Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. My name's Lenny Shale and today we've got something a little bit different. What we've got is the recording of a recent YouTube broadcast from the Committee for Workers International, which is the international organisation the Socialist Party is part of. I chaired the broadcast and I was joined by Hannah Sell, the General Secretary of the Socialist Party, and Rob Williams, the industrial organiser of the Socialist Party, just to go over some of the major political, economic and social crises affecting the UK in the current period, where we've seen one of the highest death rates during the pandemic per head of population, a Tory government headed by Boris Johnson facing allegations of corruption, cash for curtains, Huge allegations won his former advisor Dominic Cummings and only last week the loss of a by-election that has always been held by the Tory party to Liberal Democrats where we also saw the Labour Party score one of its lowest votes in electoral history. There's a crisis affecting the British ruling class. There's no mass voice for ordinary working class people and at the same time we've seen enormous industrial battles and struggles develop and also an important elections taking place in a number of trade unions, primarily the Unison, trade union one of the biggest in the country, but also for the General Secretary of Unite, where Len McCluskey, the former left General Secretary, is stepping down and an important election is taking place there. So we're going to be discussing some of the important issues around that and how socialists view the situation and what programme we put forward, but also the situation affecting working class people across the country and also importantly facing young people where 3.4 million people still on the furlough scheme that's due to end on the 9th of October. So there's potential for a bonfire of jobs, terms and conditions and we want to discuss how best social can position themselves to intervene in those inevitable struggles. So I hope you enjoy it. Like I said, it's a little bit different today, but we're going to be discussing all those issues to find out the socialist position in terms of what's taking place in Britain right now. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Committee for Works International news broadcast. My name's Lenny Shale and today I'm joined by Hannah Sell, General Secretary of the Socialist Party, and Rob Williams, the industrial organiser for the Socialist Party, just to discuss important questions in terms of what's taking place in Britain today, where we've seen huge and major political, economic and social crisis related to the coronavirus pandemic. So today we're going to discuss with Hannah and Rob what's the socialist positions, the take on what's taking place. And I think maybe just to start, because you should maybe just outline, Hannah, the situation facing the government in this sort of period of crisis for it. Thanks, Lenny. I mean, Lenny's really described in summary there the crisis that's facing this Tory government. I mean, Johnson, he's a poundland Trump. He's not trusted by the majority of big business and the capitalist class in Britain. The Brexit deal that he's carried through, it's not in the interest of the working class. I mean, we in the Socialist Party argued for a leave vote in the referendum because we don't agree with the EU bosses club. We stand for a socialist alternative to the EU. But the Tory Brexit deal is a disaster. And it's not in the interest of working class people, but it's also not in the interest of big business. It's been a bit disguised by the nightmare of the pandemic, where... As Lenny said, there's been, I think, the fifth highest death rate in the world, the deepest recession in 300 years. So the effect of Brexit has been hidden, but actually it's hitting big businesses' profits hard. It's also leading to an escalation of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland. So Johnson 
is hopeless from the point of view of big business, but they've had no choice but to put up with him because it seemed like he had this electoral golden touch that he could win elections for the Tories. They've got an 80-seat majority in Parliament at the moment. Actually, that's always been an illusion. If you look back to the May local elections that took place at the start of May, there was a by-election at that time, which was in a traditional Labour seat that Labour had always won, and the Tories managed to win it. And it was like, look at Johnson, he's marvellous, he can win any election. In fact, the Tory vote only went up by a 1,000 votes. What happened is Labour's vote collapsed because they're offering no alternative for working-class people. But still, there was this illusion that Johnson was electorally successful. But as Lenny indicated, the shine is starting to come off that, particularly with the by-election that took place last week. This was a seat, a traditional Tory seat, where since the seat was founded, set up, whatever you do to a seat, back in 1974, I think, it's always had a Tory majority. They've never fallen below 50% of the vote, and they were slaughtered. They got 36% of the vote, and the Liberal Democrats won that seat. Labour did even worse. I mean, Labour had their worst result in election history, getting 622 votes. But nonetheless, it's a sign of the unpopularity of many of Johnson's policies, and that's related to the pandemic, everything that working and middle-class people have suffered, but also some of the other specific issues in that by-election were related to the Tory government's further deregulation of our already extremely deregulated planning laws, which has been done not to provide homes for working-class people, not at all, but to provide fat profits for the construction industry. You want to give a bit of an idea of the corruption of this government? Um, Very similar planning developments to those that people were protesting against in this by-election were agreed in another similar part of Britain the week before against the opposition of the local population, the town council. The Tory government shoved them through. Why did they shove them through? Because a billionaire property developer had given them 150 grand. And literally 48 hours later, they agree the construction project. So that's the character of this government and some of the reasons it's becoming unpopular. And of course, as the illusion that Johnson can win elections starts to come off, then the Tories are splitting because they were split anyway. The cabinet are openly briefing against each other. Tory advisers are resigning. There are greater divisions developing in the Tory party, even the fact that just before the G7, the last Prime Minister, Theresa May, was part of a big rebellion to try and embarrass Johnson about his cuts to international aid. So this seemingly strong government is actually quite weak and they're going to be facing so many problems. One of the reasons they did a little bit better in the elections that took place at the start of May was the vaccine bounce. People are happy to have a vaccine. And the same happened for the Scottish government, the Welsh government. Every incumbent government had a certain bounce because the vaccine has been rolled out, thanks to the National Health Service, on quite a big scale. But that doesn't alter the fact that we've got this enormously high death rate from the virus. And now we're facing post-COVID austerity. So they're going to cut benefits for the unemployed at the same time as they end the furlough. And the furlough is what has been preventing still more than 2 million people being thrown out of work. So you're going to see a hike in unemployment at the same time as unemployment benefits are cut. There's been a formal ban on evictions of people who can't pay the rent during the pandemic. 
there's still been 130,000 people evicted, but the formal ban is now ending and evictions are going to take place wholesale on a really big scale. You've got a public sector pay freeze. We've got 5 million people waiting for National Health Service treatment because of the backlog as a result of the pandemic. We've got the intractable problems in Northern Ireland, the growing mood for independence in Scotland and the campaign for a referendum there. And the Tory party are facing all of these problems. And you could not at all exclude that they decide to ditch Johnson because he becomes a liability facing all of this against the background of heightened class struggle. But whatever happens, actually, this is a weak Tory government. The only advantage they've got is the opposition is even weaker. We'll come on to that later in the podcast. But Labour are absolutely hopeless. But that's for another question. Brilliant. Cheers, Hannah. I mean, Rob, as well, there's been... Hannah's outlined the crisis facing the Tory government, its potential for splits, divisions, its weakness in reality. And I think during the pandemic, although there was an element of a halting of society, we've also seen big industrial battles, many strikes taking place up and down the country in all different variety of sectors. And actually an increase in trade union membership, particularly in the education sector, where clearly there's been a battle taking place by teachers and those workers. We saw that after Christmas. Now, how can these industrial battles win? And are we seeing a layer of more younger people as well in more precarious sectors of the economy and areas of work, gaining more interest in unions and taking the fight into the unions and other areas of the economy? Well, first of all, there has been a growth and an increase in industrial battles. But of course, unfortunately, that wasn't the case throughout the pandemic. You know, when you look back to last spring, unfortunately in most of the trade unions. You know, the idea was put forward, unfortunately, or accepted by too many trade union leaders that somehow there was a national unity between the unions, between workers, between the employers and between this Tory government. We argued against that, we warned against that, that that wasn't the case, that inevitably there would be an offensive. And of course, that has been the factor, I think, that has changed the situation because there has been a boss's offensive you know, a brutal offensive, actually. And, of course, the method, the weapon of choice that has been used in most occasions, actually, has been fire and rear. Not the only one, but that has been used. We hardly knew about the idea of fire and rear, but, of course, that's been used. I think it's been estimated that around 25 companies that people know about have used this method, i.e. just imposing changes to contracts. So that has meant, for instance, that the British gas workers... You know, I think some of them are going to lose £15,000. The coffee workers in Banbury who are on strike at the moment, some of those are going to lose £12,000. And that has been detailed up and down the country. Although we should say that one of the first employers to use fire and rear was the Labour Council in East London, the Tower Hamlets, actually in the area where the heroic popular Labour Councils faced down Tory cuts a century ago. We have Labour Councils now using the same methods that British Gas, British Airways and all these employers are using. So we have seen resistance. We have seen workers taking action and taking lots of action. So, for instance, the British Gas workers who, you know, I think fought a very brave battle. They took 40-odd days of strike action. The bus workers in Manchester took 85 days of strike action. The bin workers in Thurrock in Essex were out for six weeks. And that is a pattern that is emerging actually have taken action and of course there have been victories you know if workers fight workers can win the bus workers in Manchester they won the bin workers in Thurrock they won you know I think I mentioned 
it wasn't an official strike action, but the electricians, the Sparks, that 10 years ago faced the Besner contract that would have reduced their wages by a third, they faced the de-skilling agenda of some of the big construction companies. And after a battle that took place since late February, they won that. And we stood by them, the Socialist Party, but also the National Shop Stewards Network, we stood by them every step of the way in that struggle. And the question you ask, Lenny, I think is very important because if the unions fight, they also put their stamp on these events as well. They become a pole of attraction to big layers. And the one example I would use is workers in East London, again, a small group of workers, mainly young, worked for a good lot. I think they were IT workers for that company. That dispute, you know, they were brutally attacked, by the way, by the employer there. They were sacked by that worker. But these were workers who, frankly, a few months ago, weren't in the trade union movement. You know, they joined Unite. They took indefinite strike action. We hope they're coming to a settlement against that vicious employer. But that just shows what is possible, that, you know, there are many, many young workers we know that aren't in the trade union movement. Some of them don't even know about the trade union movement. But of course, you know, if workers fight, they, they, they can be attracted around that stage. A few months ago, we were supporting the delivery workers that were taking action in London, but also in Leeds, in many other cities around the country as well. So yes, if workers fight, then they can attract a new layer, a new generation of workers to the union movement. But the big lesson that we've already started to learn, whether it's in the private sector or the public sector, you mentioned the teachers as well, they forced Johnson back on his unsafe reopening of schools, is that there is a growing offensive. As Anna said, let's be clear, the bosses are on the attack, but there's a lot still yet to come down the line. But what we've already seen is workers are prepared to fight. And if a lead is given, they can win as well. Brilliant. Cheers, Rob. I mean, just back to Hannah. I mean, Hannah, you talked about a minute ago, the crisis facing the Tories, their weakness, the potential for splits and divisions. I think clearly many people would be asking, well, how are they still in power? And clearly one of the key reasons is, is because the supposed opposition, the Labour Party, presents no opposition. Stam has been leading Labour Party now for just over a year. He's determined and clearly successfully to make Labour trustworthy for big business, capitalism once again. Corbyn is still suspended. There are still some that maybe think that Labour Party can be reclaimed, but clearly for many working class people, it's returned to full out Blairism. Now, can it be changed? And actually what tasks for genuine socialists, what are the key tasks now in terms of fighting for political representation for working class people? Just following on actually from what Rob was saying, because it does link together. If you look at education workers and teachers, first of all, Overall, union membership has gone up again for the fourth year on the trot, but overwhelmingly that's because of education workers. And they've joined the trade unions because there's been a battle in the schools, as Rob said, over questions of health and safety, and they've forced the Johnson government back. But Starmer backed Johnson. He didn't back the education unions. He was not prepared to do it. So why would any teacher or education worker be enthused about Starmer? He's put just a version of what the government has said. And he's done that on every issue at every stage because he is, as Lenny said, so desperate to show that the Corbyn era is over and that Labour is a safe party for big business. And, yeah, Corbyn's still suspended. The three-month review was meant to be in February. There's been no review. And, unfortunately, 
Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters at the top of the Labour Party are just staying quiet. It's almost like they hope if they don't say anything, somebody will let them back in. And it's not going to happen. The opposite's happening. Now, Howard Beckett, who is one of the left assistant general secretaries of the Unite Trade Union, the biggest affiliate to Labour, is one of the Unite representatives on Labour's executive. He's been suspended too. They just keep adding them up. And then meanwhile... The ex-Tory MP and Tory speaker, John Burkow, has been let into the Labour Party. He's welcomed. While these trade unionists, anybody who is a supporter of Corbyn, is under threat of being kicked out. Peter Mandelson, who was one of the main advisers to Tony Blair, is now back as Starmer's advisor. The party just keeps moving to the right, even though it's not electorally popular. They're not winning elections. I mean, I gave the example earlier about the 622 votes they got in a parliamentary constituency, the lowest vote in the whole history of the Labour Party in the by-election last week. Now, you might say, well, that's a middle-class area, that's why. But under Corbyn in 2017, they got 11,000 votes in that area. It's not that there aren't people who can't be inspired to vote Labour, but why vote for this version of watered-down Toryism? Because that's what Starmer is putting forward. And in our view... Having failed to transform the Labour Party under Corbyn's leadership, which could have been done, it would have taken a battle, but the opportunity was there. But having failed to do that, it's utopian to think that it's going to be possible to transform Labour into a party that actually stands up for working class people. And the task now is starting to build something new. I think you'd have to say, right at the moment... There's not many forces grabbing hold of that task. Actually, even a lot of good fighting workers, some of the workers that Rob was talking about who've been out on strike, probably feel at the moment like they're all useless. All the politicians are the same, but what can you do about it? We've just got to fight industrially. Understandably, it seems like too big a task to take on. But we think, in the end, we understand it, But that's a mistake. It's not a solution. Because what that means is you're condemning yourself to constantly having to fight against big business politicians who are acting against your workforce, who are not repealing anti-trade union laws when they're in office, when they're in local councils, are carrying out cuts, sacking workers, implementing fire and rehire. So what's posed is starting to build something new. And we're doing that in the Trade Unionist and Socialist Coalition alongside other forces. And we think on a much bigger scale than we're able to do at this stage, that will begin to develop. Because despite the lack of a lead from the top, you can see, once workers start thinking about these issues, those are the conclusions that they draw. The Bakers Union, which is a much smaller affiliate to the Labour Party, but they've done a survey of their members about what they think about the Labour Party. And it's very interesting reading. Because a small majority, I think 52 or 53%, think they should stop being affiliated to the Labour Party. But that doesn't mean that they want unpolitical trade unionism, because 56% of them think that they need a political link. And the report says that many of them are starting to think about supporting smaller, non-mainstream parties. So they're looking for a political alternative Because the report explicitly says they see Labour as just having followed behind the Tories throughout the pandemic and therefore something new is needed. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bakers Union are about to put forward proposals to act on that, 
but it shows the mood that's developing and will develop in other unions as well. It will be posed in Unite after the General Secretary election that is taking place at the moment. It's going to be posed for the Transport Workers Union. The RMT does support the Trade Unionist and Socialist Coalition, but they're going to be facing major attacks from the government and in London, they'll have the Labour mayor doing the government's bidding to carry out attacks on them. The need to have a political wing to your fight is going to be posed more urgently. So in our view, it's a question of fighting for a new mass workers' party. And we're taking what steps we can in that direction. But we think it's going to be posed on a much bigger scale in the next period. Brilliant, Hannah. And I think you're definitely right. I think... The latest figures show 8 out of 10 councils are on the verge of bankruptcy, many of them led by Labour parties. Over the last 10 years, we've seen huge cuts by Labour councils. I know where I'm from in the West Midlands, 18,000 jobs lost under the control of Labour parties. So that onset of COVID austerity that councils and local government are going to have to be well, forced by the government to carry out, there's going to be almighty battles taking place. And many people will be questioning, well, who does Labour Party stand up for? the Tories, big business or ordinary people. I think what we're trying to do with Tusk is going to play a key part in that. But you mentioned there about the battles taking place in Unite, which has an element of a sort of similar, where this battle in the Labour Party is also reflected in Unite and other trade unions, where the battle between those that are determined to stand up and fight in the interests of their members, of workers, but also against those that are more interested in doing backroom deals, siding up with Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party. And we've seen important elections taking place in key unions in Unison and Unite, two of the biggest unions in Britain. And so, Rob, what's taking place in those unions? We've seen the left on paper take control of the NEC in Unison, but also now within Unite, we're seeing three candidates emerge in the General Secretary election. We have Gerard Coyne, who represents... He's a Blairite in reality, um, a right-winger, who Starmer clearly wants to win. We've got Steve Turner now, and maybe you can talk about how Howard Beckett, a left candidate, has now unfortunately sided up with Steve. But we also have Sharon Graham, another left candidate, who I believe the Socialist Party, we're going to be back in supporting the election. Can you maybe just talk about what's taking place in these unions and what's the strategy and tactics that sort of socialists have to discuss but also fight for in these unions? Well, obviously, as you described, very, very important elections and in all number of unions, by the way, but for time today, just to concentrate on these two unions. I mean, first of all, we welcome the victory of the left in unison. It's an absolutely fantastic moment, really. But what a platform to make big changes in that union. Socialist Party has four members on that NEC and they will continue to play a really, really important role. And it is important that what the left does in unison, this is an entrenched right wing, they've been defeated in the NEC election, but they have the opportunity now really to show what that means in practice. And of course that means industrially, because unison is at the center really of the pay freeze in the public sector the ridiculous, contemptuous offer to NHS workers. You know, they, like all others, been on the front line during the pandemic. But that has got to be Amadome now, you know. And for us as well, that means changes in the union. What an opportunity to democratise the union that the NEC has, but also the demands that it puts on Starmer, but also on Labour councils, what you've just mentioned, really. Unison is the main local authority 
the NEC, the lay leadership of the union, should be saying that we want Labour councils where their member, you know, where Unison members are under attack. They want Labour councils to refuse to pass on any more Tory cuts, to pass no cuts budgets. We'll enter in, by the way, the budget set in, the start of the budget set in process for next year. What an opportunity. And this is the platform that the left in Unison must take to really show in action where it differs from McInnie and the apprentice era of that union. And of course, how it relates to Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party. They should make a public pronouncement that they want Jeremy Corbyn reinstated. All those in the left who have been attacked in the way that Anna has described, they should be saying this is now Unison's policy. And of course, for Howard and other lefts to be reinstated in the movement, of course, we want them to go far further than that. You know, why can't Unison, for instance, not just call, but organise a conference of the left to discuss, you know, the politics the workers need at the moment? Why can't they now bring together all the unions that are affiliated or non-affiliated to Labour, but particularly those outside of the Labour Party, those socialists as well? That is what the platform that winning the NEC election does right now. And I think that's what they should do. They should also, I think... Uh, been the forefront of calling for coordinated action across the public sector against the pay freeze. The pay freeze, by the way, that was announced by the Tories at the end of last October. You know, that is what this victory can mean, not just for Unison, but of course for the wider trade union movement in Britain as well. And I think that is what the left majority of the NEC has to move quickly to really set out at this stage. As far as United is concerned, my own trade union then this is an absolutely crucial election. Let's be absolutely crystal clear. This election is about maintaining and in fact building on what has happened in the last decade in Unite being seen as a fighting union industrially, but also politically standing up to Starmer right now, but also, of course, back in Jeremy Corbyn. The last general secretary election took place in 2017. That was the year after the attempted Blairite Corbyn coup. That election was seen through the candidature of Coyne, who at the time was the regional secretary of the West Midlands region of the Union, that was seen as another opportunity to attack Corbyn through Unite. That is why in that election we were absolutely justified in supporting Len McCluskey and that victory actually against Coyne opened up the door really and strengthened Corbyn and allowed then Corbyn to conduct the general election in 2017. Of course, we can remember, I think it was the biggest increase in the Labour vote since 1945. At that stage, it was a left manifesto, could have gone further, but nevertheless, when you compare it to what Starmer's putting forward right now, and it mobilised people in that election. This election, however, is taking place after the defeat of Corbyn, and I think we are seeing a reflection of that. You know, as Lenny pointed out, you know, we differentiate between the candidates. Gerard Coyne is not just a Blairite. As far as I'm concerned, he is a direct representative of the employers. His victory would be an attempt to turn the union to the right, both industrially and politically. But we have to say, and we have a responsibility to say, that Steve Turner's candidature is not a continuation of Len McCluskey. It would be a retreat, both industrially and politically. And we have to warn about that. You know, this is not our words, by the way. I was in the United Left Stains last year 
when it was between Howard and Steve Turner. And Steve Turner said, I disagree with Howard Beckett. We don't need an attack dog leading our union. What we need is someone in the background doing the deals. Well, you talk to the workers who are facing fire on Ria, yeah. You talking about workers who are facing increasing levels of union victimization and the attacks by the employers, they need an attack dog. They want our union. You talk to the electricians up in Gateshead at the moment that have been sacked by the employer, really, for standing up for themselves. And they will say, no, that is exactly what we need in our union. And we have a responsibility to warn of that. And as Lenny said, our position has been all through this election, when Howard Beckett and Sharon Graham have been standing, is that we wanted them to come together. We wanted them to agree a joint candidacy, probably taking the best from each of their programmes. You know, Howard has been standing up against Starmer. Let's be clear, that's why he's been suspended by Starmer. Uh, Lenny can remember when he was acting regional secretary in the West Midlands, where in reality, you know, he led the bins dispute against the right-wing cutting Labour Council. But Sharon is seen by some of the best fighters in the union as having an industrial strategy to build and organise the union to take on the employers. We wanted them to agree that. Unfortunately, last week, Howard withdrew from the election, but not as we wanted to come together with Sharon, but unfortunately to support Steve. We think that is a big mistake. We think if Howard had united with Sharon, that would have totally electrified the election. Actually, there could have been a case made for Steve to withdraw because combined they would have had bigger levels of support within the union. But nevertheless, we are giving support to Sharon Graham in this election. You know, we don't agree with all her programme. We think a programme could be strengthened, particularly uh, politically. There are points that Sharon makes in her programme where she makes it clear that if Labour councils make cuts, we have to oppose them and fight against them. She says that we should only support those political candidates that support our policies. We hope that that means opening up, really, that our discussion, if she becomes General Secretary, that Unite should be able to support those candidates, like those in Tusk, like those in the Socialist Party, that support Unite's policy, that opposes Labour Council sacking our members, etc. So... We think that Sharon's campaign is the best uh, option for Unite uh, members. And I appeal to those Unite members who were supporting Howard because they saw Howard as standing up to Starmer, that the only candidate that is going to do that in this election, it's not going to be Steve Turner, it's obviously not going to be Gerard Goyne, the only candidate with the potential to do that is Sharon Graham. So if you were supporting Howard, support Sharon in this election. But I think... What this election is already showing is that the need, but also the potential to build a new left in Unite, and that's needed obviously in a number of unions, but that potential is there. So during this election, Socialist Party members will be out getting the vote. The ballot papers go out on Monday, July the 5th. We will obviously be getting votes in for Sharon, but part and parcel of that is really the need to build a left in that union, whatever the outcome of the election is. And of course... We hope that outcome isn't that Gerard Coyne is elected, but we also believe that Sharon's campaign does offer the opportunity to get to vote those members, frankly, probably those 90% of members in the United who don't vote in this election. They want a militant union. They want a union that's going to stand up against the employers, is going to back our members taking action, but also our union to give a political lead as well, to give an answer to the idea of, well, what do we need now that Starmer is leading the Labour Party? That debate is out there. 
let's hope that Shannon wins the election and that discussion and debate goes on further and the need to build a fighting left in the night. Brilliant, cheers, Rob. And on the Socialist Party website, you can see a whole number of articles written by Rob and other members of ours in Unite detailing how we've posed the question, appealed both for Howard and Sharon over the last year in reality to come together to combine their basis of support to help build that new left. But also our latest statement in terms of why we're supporting Sharon, but also what we're demanding and what we think actually is needed for a left general secretary and demands in terms of how Unite can really take the lead, both industrially and politically. But we touched on the crisis facing the Tories, the Labour Party, the debates in the trade unions. I mean, another major issue, Hannah, is the crisis facing young people. Now, this isn't just in Britain, it's, it is internationally. And I think as of the 3rd of June, 3.4 million people still on furlough. Mostly young people, I think, the, I can't remember the exact percentage, but a huge percentage under the age of 25. Now, on the 9th of October, the furlough scheme is meant to be uplifted. Many companies have sort of lagged along using the government scheme. So huge numbers of young people already lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. Many more are expected to. But as well as that, we've seen huge attacks. Many young people have faced the onset of attacks on fiery hire, attacks to their terms and conditions by companies using COVID as an excuse to go after workers. And young people have faced, in many ways, the brunt of that. But not just that, we've also seen students as well. In the last year, we've seen some of the biggest mobilisations of students. Now, ironically, in many cases done from their parents' houses in their own bedrooms through the, we've seen rent strikes. In some cases, we have seen protests, in many cases organised by social party members, part of social students. But that anger, that frustration and that complete disillusionment and no confidence in this current system is not going to go away. So there's potential for big movements developing in the autumn. And I think we've seen a glimpse of that. I don't know what you think in the last year where... It was only a year ago, thousands of people, young people pouring from the estates on the original Black Lives Matter, George Floyd protests. As well as that, the movements around Sarah Everett, the Kill the Bill protests. Of course, in the last few weeks, thousands, hundreds of thousands in London, thousands in many cities, where I was in Birmingham, four or five thousand pouring out against the Israeli attacks on the Palestinian people and the Gaza Strip. What do you think is the potential for more movements to develop? And what can socialists do in terms of playing a role in that, in terms of trying to bring them together, but also providing a bit of more of a programme and what's needed for young people? Okay, thanks, Lenny. I mean, I think you've touched on the main points on this issue, really. It is very striking that all year we've had kind of eruptions of protests on different issues and they've all been dominated by young people, mainly by very working class young people, The Palestinian demonstrations in London were massive. I mean, really gigantic. And it was overwhelmingly young Asian, not only Asian, but predominantly Asian, working class young people who were out on the streets. And that's different to previous Palestinian demos. It was on a bigger scale. And the other thing that was interesting about it is that in the past you'd have had a lot of discussions with people saying or maybe the US president can sort this out for us, or maybe the United Nations can sort it out for us. The platform speakers were still saying that stuff, but none of the demonstrators thought it. It was universal. The institutions of capitalism are never going to solve this. We need people power, you know, so it wasn't a kind of develop, but the idea it's us, it's ordinary people. And that is obviously about solidarity with the plight of the Palestinians. But there's no question it's also fuelled by what, 
working class young people have suffered. If you're 18, it's a lot of your life, a formative part of your life that has been in lockdown, where you've had no proper education, you've been thrown out of your job, in poverty, your family queuing for the food banks. I've said this in other broadcasts, but literally in my local area in East London, every Saturday night... There are queues of young people, not to get into a club, but to go to the local food bank, round the block, because they've got literally nothing to eat, and all of that has had a big effect. The Guardian newspaper, the British newspaper, did a kind of survey of hundreds of young people from across Europe, Generation Z as they call them. But it was amazing how universal their experience was, that they were all saying... We're the sacrifice generation, we've got no hope, we've lost everything and we need to fight, we need revolution, we've got to do something. So it's incohate, but there is a real potential for the development of all kinds of mass movements of young people. I think on lots of different issues, because there isn't organisation and because there are so many different things to be angry about, it can be on international issues, but it can also be against evictions that are taking place. The question of the students and what's going to happen there. Like Len said, there's been rent strikes, the biggest rent strikes, I think, since the 1970s, organised in lockdown. But next year, students are going to be partially back on campus, expected to pay £9,000 a year in tuition, but still with a big chunk of their learning online, it's looking like, and also with big cuts taking place on the campus. And actually, it's difficult to struggle when you're stuck at home in your parents' you know, bedroom on Zoom. It's much easier when you're physically back on the campuses. So we could see big eruptions coming up on the campuses in the course of the next year. And then there's also the very important issue of youth unemployment that Lenny's highlighted. Because it's true, even now, I think amongst young black people, there is more than 40% unemployment. That is higher than it was at the time of the Brixton riots in the early 80s. Amongst young people as a whole, unemployment is higher than amongst other sections of the population. Officially, it's about 14%, but there's a much bigger chunk who are economically inactive, who are not even trying to find work. So actually, real youth unemployment figures are much higher. And that's while the furlough scheme is still running. Once it ends, there is going to be a further hike in unemployment One survey by Leeds University surveyed, I think, 2,000 employers and half of them said, we have been delaying, laying people off or lowering their wages and conditions until the end of the furlough scheme. But it's inevitable that we're going to do it. That's the reality coming down the track. So in the Socialist Party, we initiated in the Great Recession. So over 10 years ago, Youth Fight for Jobs, a campaign that I think now has the backing of seven national trade unions, that is around the issue of give young people a future and that the trade union movement has to fight for young people to have a future, that we should have the right to proper education and training with a living grant while you're being educated, but also at the end of that, the right to a decent job. And relaunching that campaign and organising around it is going to be a very important aspect of our work in the next few months because if the trade union and the workers' movement doesn't fight for young people... It won't stop them fighting back, but it can take an incohate form. Rioting out of frustration of everything you're facing and the police brutality that you're facing rather than an organised and more powerful movement. So the workers' movement has an obligation to fight for the next generation and we as the Socialist Party have an important role to play in fighting for that to take place.
Brilliant. Cheers, Tanya. And you're dead right. I think a whole number of issues. I mean, one of the issues I forgot was the A-level protest last summer. And it's likely to be even more chaos this August around A-level results when children in Britain, teenagers leave school when they get their grades for university. And like you say, many of them are going to be facing nine grand a year fees for, I think, phrase I often use, a Netflix education. But a Netflix subscription is far more cheaper. So there's huge protests in that. I think we in the Socialist Party, we're going to be calling for protests on the 9th of October up and down the country and spending the summer, really. Our members are going to be going out there, fighting on colleges and workplaces, wherever there are young people gathered, to make sure that that anger is channeled and we can help organise it to deal a bit of a blow, really, to the Tories and what they're trying to do to young people. I mean, just to conclude, we've gone over a whole number of issues and I'll ask Rob first, but Hannah, feel free to jump in if you've got any further points. We touched on crisis facing the Tories, the problems facing the Labour Party and really the desperate need for a fighting working class representation for working class people and the absence of that. But what we're trying to do to help at least provide the foundations for that and mobilise those that are searching for an alternative the debates within the trade unions and obviously the young people, but what prospects are there in terms of trying to build support for socialist ideas in this current environment? And what can we do, and anyone who's interested listening, what can they do if they're interested in terms of getting involved and potentially getting involved with the socialist party? Well, I think when you have a period like this, isn't it, what this has done is that it has increasingly raised with more and more layers of people exactly how the way society is run. I mean, when I think we all mentioned the different protests that have taken place, quite explosive character going back last year at the Black Lives Matter, but the other movements that have taken place, I also think it was expressed in Sarah Everard, the Palestinian protests as well, is that I don't think that's an accident because what the pandemic has shown, I think I mentioned at the start the issue of national unity. Well, of course, when you have the gross class inequalities that have been exposed, then... That makes you think a little bit. It makes you think about the way society is run, isn't it? I mean, he's now doing his blog now, Dominic Cummings. But of course, he wasn't lost on people last year, was there? There was one rule for Dominic Cummings. I'm not sure Boris would have allowed him to do or get away with what he did. But of course, that did reveal the inequalities, the growth of billionaires. Well, Anna talks about in her area, people queuing for food banks. You know, that has stripped, if you like, all the pretense around, you know, that... The employers can reduce your wage by £10,000 a year and yet the number of billionaires increase in the world. So all this is really raising in people's minds, I think, at this stage. And of course, in most cases, it's more of a questioning. But I do think a significant layer of people are open to draw conclusions that we are putting forward that this isn't an accident. It's a systemic issue. It's capitalist system. It's the way the society is organised. The fact that it's run in the interests of the billionaires, of the big multinational companies and at the expense of those who put themselves in the front line, who exposed themselves to all the safety concerns over the last year. So the health workers who were being clapped a year ago, but they're only good for one or two percent pay rise, etc. That's why, you know, we support in their action really for a 15% rise and we'll be on the NHS Day of Action July the 3rd. So, you know, that's the question. I think I compare it and I know others do that this is the biggest crisis faced by working-class people since the Second World War. Mm. But if you look what happened after the Second World War, that was a catastrophe, obviously, and it took place after the years of depression. But, of course, what it did do 
is that it, it brought home that you need a different type of society. And the Labour government that was brought in in 1945 was the most radical government we've had in this country if it didn't make the break with capitalism. And the gains that were made, some still remain today, but a lot of them have been taken back over the following decades. But nevertheless, it was a period where big sections of the working class were radicalised and were drawn to socialist ideas. And I'm confident that an increasing layer of people, an increasing layer of working class people, of young people, are drawing the conclusion that we don't want to go back, we want something different. And I think they can be one to socialist ideas. So if you're watching this, then think about getting involved in the Socialist Party. I mean, people may know I go to a number of picket lines supporting workers taking action. What I've noticed in the last couple of weeks is when I go to Socialist Party activity, whether it's been supporting workers taking action or on paper sales or whatever, I talk to people and they say, oh, I'm a member of the Socialist Party. That's a sign that people are becoming interested and are getting involved in our activities and our work, but you should as well. Brilliant. Cheers, Rob. And thanks, Hannah, for joining us today. As Rob said, I don't think there's anything more to add to that. If you're interested in socialist ideas, like what you've heard today, make sure you get in touch with the Committee for Workers International. If you're not in England and Wales, but also the England and Wales Socialist Party, if you are, you can go to socialistworld.net. You can also follow us at Twitter at CWI Socialist. And you can also go to the Socialist Party national website, socialistparty.org.uk. You can like the Facebook page, socialistworld slash CWI. Follow us on Instagram, at socialistworld. And all of our streams are available live and to watch after on YouTube on the channel CWI Media. So thanks again. Thanks, Hannah, General Secretary of the Socialist Party, Rob Williams, Industrial Organiser for the Socialist Party. And thanks again and join in next time. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Workers International. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for Workers International. Today we heard from Hannah Sell, the General Secretary of the Socialist Party, and Rob Williams, the Industrial Organiser for the Socialist Party. And my name's Lenny Shale. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes of your podcast app. And if you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty .org.uk. Socialism the podcast relies on the funding from our members and supporters only. We have no big business backers or adverts and this just allows us to maintain our political independence. Can you help fund this podcast? You can make a regular donation or one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. And even more important, if you agree with the ideas of the Socialist Party and interested in what you've heard today and want to discuss more or actually just join the Socialist Party, well, get in touch and find out how you can become a member and join the fight for a socialist transformation society both in Britain and across the world. So you can apply to join at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. And if you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism wherever you are, contact the Committee for Works International by visiting socialistworld.net. Thank you and see you again next week.